following audio is from Crossroads Church in West Ossipee, New Hampshire. For more information about Crossroads Church, you can go to www.crossroadsossipee.com. Uh, so, this morning we're going to look at a, a Second Timothy chapter 4. Uh, going to continue our work in there. Um, and I would say, uh, as a minister, as a pastor, I've had... Uh, many times the somber privilege of performing many funerals and memorial services. And one of the greatest challenges for me, if you're curious, uh, which you're not, but I'm telling you anyway, one of the great challenges of that is writing a eulogy. Um, A eulogy like a a summary of a person's life. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. I've been at it for a while, but I don't know that I've ever done it right. So you can correct me after and say that's not what it is. But that's the way I look at it. It's usually a summary of a person's life, the things that they enjoyed and the accomplishments that they made. It's really just a snapshot of who they were and, and, and what kind of impact they made on the world around them. These are often written by loved ones, folks that knew them best, uh, which is, my, in my opinion, the best way to do it. Not as a, like, if I did not know the person, it's really hard to encapsulate their lives of a person I've never met before, uh, so that's hard. Um, but it's the best when the people that know them uh, write those thoughts. Um, most times for me, I ask people to share stories of a person's life, so I don't have to uh, fake it. I try to be honest with people. Say, I don't know your loved one. I'm sorry, but you did. So tell everybody about them. Uh, and that's always a powerful time. Um, sometimes people get new perspectives and hear stories about things that um, they, uh, they didn't know before. But the best kind of eulogy is a kind you don't have to write. Um, you're saying no because someone has not passed away, but that's not what I mean. <laughs> what I mean is the kind of eulogy that people write for themselves. And that's uh, this takes all the pressure off, <laughs> um, for me at least. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul did in Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Second Timothy 4. 6 through 8, and if you're using the Pew Bible, that's page 996, uh, if that's helpful to you. So we read that together and then to pray. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Mm. Let's pray. Father, we thank you we're able to gather here this morning around your word. We're able to sing songs of praise and open our hearts to you and sung. And Lord, I pray now that you would open your word to us, that our eyes would be open, our ears uh, and our hearts would be soft to receive the message that you have for us this morning. These are your words, and we look forward to hearing from you. So, God, we give you this time so that you would make us more like your son. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, I, this is kind of morbid, but all those funerals and uh, memorials that, that I uh, often find myself at or performing, I often wonder, what would people say, what would people say at my funeral? Now, usually people say things that are nice because that's what you do, right? You say nice things. Kenny won't when it's my turn, but that's all right. That's unfortunate reality, yeah. So we tend to look past the bad habits. We tend to look past the irritating traits that people had. And I don't I don't imagine at my funeral someone will stand up and say, oh, he always made such beautiful wood turnings, but I always tracked all the stinking shavings all through the house. You know, who would say that? He left his dirty boots in the middle of the floor all the time. Well, maybe somebody will. Now you all will. Hmm. Paul took all the work out for everybody else. He did the hard work of writing his eulogy before anyone else could do it for him. And he eloquently looked at his present circumstances. He looked back on his past and looked forward to his future. Sound like a three-point sermon, doesn't it? And these three sentences, I think we can find encouragement to live a life like the Apostle Paul lived, a life well lived. And Paul, um, not perfect. He's a human just like us. But he's filled with the same Holy Spirit that we are through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, not, he is not a, a golden statue or an idol to bow down to. But he is an example that we can follow because he is a fully human person, right? Uh, and with the same resources available to him. So I think that's why we hold him up as a model for us to follow. So look at verse 6. We can see Paul looked at his present circumstances. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Now these are, there are two beautiful pictures here in this sentence. Uh, describe uh, Paul's assessment of his life. Now we must remember that Paul was a Jewish um, so uh, most of us are not from Jewish backgrounds, so some of these things we only learn from reading the Scripture or when we talk about them here. Um, but Paul, before he came to Christ, was a member of the strictest sect of the Jewish religion. He was a Pharisee. Um, some say he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was, he was uh, steeped in, in that legalistic um, practice. And this means that he knew the law of Moses inside and outside. The first five books of the Bible, the Torah, they have to memorize them. And he did that. And I'd like to read from Numbers 15 to give you a picture of what Paul meant when he said being poured out as a drink offering. Numbers 15. These, I'm sure some of you have this as your, your like memory verses, life verses here. Paul spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land you are to inhabit, which I am giving to you, and you offer to the Lord from the herd or from the flock a food offering or burnt offering or sacrifice to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering or at your appointed feast to make a pleasing aroma to the Lord. 
Then he who brings his offering shall offer to the Lord a grain offering of a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a quarter hin of oil. And you shall offer with the burnt offering or for the sacrifice a quarter of a hin of wine for the drink offering for each lamb. Or for a ram you shall offer a grain offering, two tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a third of a hin of oil. And for the drink offering you shall offer a third of a hin of wine, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And when you offer a bull as a burnt offering or sacrifice to fulfill a vow or for peace offerings to the Lord, then one shall offer with the bull a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with half a hin of oil, and you shall offer for the drink offering half a hin of wine as a food offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It's moving, isn't it? <laughs> what does this have to do with Paul? Jesus was the lamb that was slain to take away the sins of the world. He was the ultimate and final sacrifice, making this ram and bull and lamb sacrifice no longer necessary. He had made the final and ultimate sacrifice for sin. So when Paul calls himself a drink offering, being poured out, he's connecting his martyrdom with Jesus' sacrifice. The, the offering of the bull was the main offering. And then there was offering of grain. And the drink offering were supplemental to that offering. Paul was not sacrificed for the sins of others, but his life was given in service to Jesus. This was not a disgrace for Paul. It was an honor. And all those who give their lives in service to Jesus serve in this honor of being poured out like a drink offering, supplemental offering. Not to say that Christ's offering was incomplete because it was enough. But when one gives their life in service for Christ, they're, they're uh, beside that offering. I think that's kind of a beautiful picture, really. An interesting way to look at it. He also said in verse 6 that the time of his departure has come. Now, this seems pretty straightforward, but it is so much better. If we just learn to speak Greek, everybody, come on, get with the program. I don't speak Greek. So this, the Internet told me this. Not really. The, some logo, yeah, Bible study software. So this this. Um, this is an instance where the English language does not do justice to the original language and the beauty of the picture. The word departure here, what do we think of? Well, see you guys, I'm, it's time to go, that, and off I go. But this, this word departure in, in the Greek, it means to loose the moorings and set sail. Right? Now, that's a little bit better than, see ya, I'm going to the store. Or I got someplace else to be. See you later. Loosing the cable from this earthly shore on a voyage to the eternal harbor of heavenly peace. That's how Christopher Wordsworth said it. That's the phrase that Paul used. It's time for me to pull up my tent stakes and move on. All right? I'm casting off the anchor and sailing off to a better place. 
Paul had used the same expression when he had written many earlier, many years earlier in Philippians 1.21, the 24. He said, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My, des- my desire is to depart, to set sail, and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul knew he had work to do, but his desire was to cast off that anchor because he knew that his final destiny was with the Lord. Now, he had come to the point in his life when this choice was not his to make. I'm not sure it was before either, but now certainly it's in the hands of someone else. The time for him to cast off the anchor and sail off to God's eternal shore had certainly come. And this is a beautiful picture of the confidence that he had of what awaited him on the other side. His focus was not on the executioner's acts that awaited him or the pain of a gruesome and bloody death. He had the confidence that when this life ended, no matter how, he would sail into an eternal life because of his faith in Jesus Christ. I've said this at countless funerals. We do not live in a land of the living, but in the land of the dying. One day we too will lose our moorings and we will depart for a land of eternal living through faith in Jesus, but only through faith in Jesus. <clears throat> okay, moving on. <clears throat> Paul also used a beautiful threefold summary of, his, summary of his past in verse 7. I think a summary that we can all aspire uh, to be said of us one day as well. And he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, if we've seen in our study of Paul, uh, he often uses the picture of an athlete to make his point. And here we have it uh, again. I have fought the good fight. Now, I w- it's very important that he does that we notice he does not say, I have fought a good fight. Like, I did all right, everybody. Right? That's not what he's saying. He's not commending himself for doing a good job. Right? Where you go. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, I have fought the good fight. When we think of fighting a good fight, it's just making it to the end, right? To live long enough so nobody remembers who you are anymore. Right? Everybody that you love is already gone and you won. You lasted the longest. Right? Sometimes I think that's really what we have in mind. But that's not what Paul is saying. He chose to fight the good fight. And it ended his life maybe earlier than if he had kept to himself. Maybe if he just minded his own business, it would not have cost him his life. What's interesting here is that the the word that Paul used here that we read as fight means to struggle or striving. It's the word that we get our word agony. He agonized the good agonizing, which is weird, but that's why they say fight the good fight because it's a little easier to understand. 
Paul struggled and strove and agonized. The only struggle, the only striving, the only agonizing worth struggling and striving and agonizing for. And that's spreading the gospel. His goal was not to just make a nice life for himself. He had that already before Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. He had a good life. He was uh, well-respected and a wealthy person. He's living the American dream, even though America was never, had not been heard of yet, right? But he chose to leave that aside, to fight not for himself, but for the souls of others. And that is the only fight worth fighting. Paul wrote back in Philippians 3, 8, For his sake, for Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's what it means to fight a good fight. He says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race. Again, he wrote back in 1 Corinthians 9 and 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but the only one receives a prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I don't run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul had run the race laid out for him by the Father. He had pressed on for the prize. As it says in Acts 20, 24, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And that's exactly the life Paul lived. What a testimony of God's grace. This man who once persecuted the church, imprisoned people for believing in Jesus, and now became a champion of the faith, testifying to God's grace before kings and queens. And we can be like that too. Paul was faithful to the end like a good soldier. He says, I fought the fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Kept the faith. He didn't allow himself to get entangled in civilian affairs like he wrote back in chapter 2 since his aim was to please the one who enlisted him, who was Jesus Christ himself. Paul remained faithful to the end. 
And he had also protected and preserved the whole body of the truth of God, the faith, the faith. We have in the letters of Paul the truth about God and about man and about the world and about evil and about godliness and faith in Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul protected. We haven't lost any of it because the Lord has also protected it. We have all these words written down because by the grace of God, Paul kept the faith. Paul not only saw the reality of his present and the faithfulness of his past, but he also had his eye on the hope of his future. Not only his, but a future that awaits us if we have faith in Jesus Christ. It says in verse 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me, award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul had a concrete hope. And that's not just a wish. We talked about that before. It's not just wishful thinking. I hope that it doesn't rain today. That's not a, that's a wish. We have uh, changed the meaning of the word. But that's not what hope is. A hope is a confident expectation. That's what Paul had, a concrete hope. A confident expectation of what awaited him at the journey's end. When he loosed the moorings and floated off to God's eternal shore, what awaited him on the other side was a crown of righteousness that the Lord Jesus would give him. This is Jesus, the righteous judge, as opposed to the unrighteous judge, the earthly judges, the judge that was awaiting Paul to hear his case as Emperor Nero. We've heard about him. He's no friend to the church. He set our brothers and sisters on fire to light banquets. Not a nice man. This was the judge on earth for Paul. But Jesus, the righteous judge, awaited him on the other side. Where Nero would just give Paul a sore throat, Jesus himself would give Paul a crown of glory. The prize that he had been striding, striving for not just a, a wreath made of leaves, oak leaves, but a crown of righteousness. On a great and wonderful day when time meets eternity, when the clouds are rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. That's the day that Paul is talking about here. That's the day he's looking forward to. Now I have to ask you, are you looking forward to that day? What? place has been reserved for our dear friend Paul at the Father's table in his eternal kingdom. And the wonderful truth that point Paul points out here in these verses is that Paul will not be the only one to receive this crown. There's hope for us. The crown of righteousness is reserved for all those who have loved the Lord's appearing. And they will be awarded that crown on the great and wonderful day. Hmm. To love his appearing, what does it mean? If you want a crown, you better have a good handle on it. Hmm. To love his appearing is to love his first appearing, a baby born in Bethlehem. You remember that? December wasn't that long ago. We talked about it quite a bit. He's born to live a perfect life, 
and to die a sinner's death for us in our place. To love his appearing is to love his resurrection from the grave. Having conquered sin and death for all those who would trust in him. What a wonderful appearing that was. And to love his appearing is to love his return in power and great glory. That day is coming. We live on a clock that's winding down. He is coming to return in power and great glory to judge the living and the dead and to gather the church to himself once and for all so that we can live on God's eternal shore in his eternal kingdom. May we live our lives in such a way that they are also true of us. Let's make this our pattern. And I would remind you that that all begins with faith in Jesus Christ. Without faith in Jesus Christ, all this is just nice talk. It's good to be here today. Nice to see you all. Yeah, that's, that's good. Without faith in Jesus Christ, none of this is possible. That's where it begins. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the example that you gave us in your servant Paul, our brother. I thank you, Lord, that he's not superhuman. He's not perfect. He's an imperfect man, lived in an imperfect world, but gave us a wonderful pattern to imitate. I pray, Lord, that we would all live lives like are described here, not dwelling on our funeral all the time, but making sure our lives are lived to your glory and in service to your Son. And, Lord, that all begins with faith in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here this morning who has not given their heart to Christ, that they simply ask you for forgiveness, to surrender their lives to you, so that you'd fill them with your Holy Spirit. Forgive their sin and give them new life and reserve a place for them in your eternal kingdom. God, we look forward to this day that you return with great hope and anticipation. May we live our lives in such a way that we are expecting that day to come at any moment so we're not wasting time by being effective in this world, not sitting on our hands or waiting for the perfect opportunity to say just the right word, but just open our mouth and wait for your words to come, to take the step and wait for you to move the ground underneath our foot. We love you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would like to participate in the mission of Crossroads Church through financial support, checks can be mailed to Crossroads Church, Post Office Box 576, West Ossipee, New Hampshire, 03890.